Amen. Thank you, Casey. If you haven't turned yet uh, to your copy of God's Word, to John 3, please do so. I want you to read along with me in this narrative. Uh, God's people have been called by different names throughout the generations and throughout history. Uh, obviously, the Israelites and the Hebrews, the Jews in the Old Testament. Uh, in reading through the New Testament, you get to Acts chapter 11, following Jesus' incarnation and His life on this earth, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and even His ascension, His followers uh, became known as Christians. And Acts 11.26 says that it was in Antioch that the disciples that is, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. And then you, you follow even beyond the first century, and uh, at different times, Christians uh, were called different things. During the Reformation in the 1500s, uh, a group of Christians uh, wanted to define themselves more than uh, what they had been defined up to that point, and, and they protested against uh, the works-based salvation uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, and they were called Protestants uh, for a time. More recently, Christians have, uh, Bible-believing Christians, Christians uh, that uh, aim to share the good news of the gospel, to evangelize others, have been known as evangelicals. Um, but even us, as, as we're living in 2023, we know that um, sometimes uh, when we say Christian, it may mean something different than when somebody else says Christian. And so over the years, we've tried to add different terms and different words to kind of uh, mean what we say uh, at different times. Uh, you heard one of our, our brother this morning in, in our prayer time from Central Asia uh, talk about what it means to be born again. Uh, I, I remember spending time in Africa, uh, in East Africa, and uh, many people there would uh, culturally call themselves Christians. But if you were a true Christian, not one just culturally, but a true Christian, one who had come to faith in Jesus, repented of their sins, and been baptized and was following Him, you would say, I'm born again. That was their way of saying, I'm a real Christian. And I reached out to uh, one of my brothers, and he gave me the, the Burundian Kurundi word for this, which is abakizwa. Uh, that they would say, I'm abakizwa instead of, I'm, I'm just a, a Christian, meaning that uh, I've been saved, I've been rescued, I've been truly born again. And, and it's that type of discussion that uh, we heard read, we're going to consider this morning between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a good Jew. He was uh, one of the best of the Israelites at that time as a member uh, of the Pharisees and the ruling council. And he would have considered himself uh, a part of the people of God. But Jesus said, you have no part in my kingdom unless you're born again. And it was this, this difference of understanding of uh, the new covenant, of what Jesus came to establish. And Jesus makes it abundantly 
uh, clear for us in this text. This is what I would hope that you would uh, take away this morning, that you would know that salvation and eternal life only come through new birth from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. I've got this written on the notes for you that you might write this down. I think this is what our text gets at this morning, that salvation and eternal life only come through new birth. That new birth which is given from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. We're going to tease that out as we go through this passage. And before we get to chapter 3, we got to go back to chapter 2. Look with me in verse 23 and 24. I mentioned it quickly last week, knowing that I would be mentioning it again this week because of how it uh, transitions from the cleansing of the temple to um, our story in chapter 3. 23 says, Now when when He, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. And He needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. We noted last week that Jesus entrusts Himself to those who truly trust in Him. And John, writing this gospel out in verse 25, as he's commenting on what was happening during that time, he says, no, uh, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man. Uh, I hope you see the transition there that, that the Apostle John is intentionally trying to make. He's saying that Jesus didn't entrust Himself to those who didn't truly trust in Him because He knew man. And here's a man to give you an example of what I mean, John is essentially saying. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, And this man came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was uh, a part of the religious sect called the Pharisees. They would have been the the Jews of all Jews. Uh, They were known for holding a high religious obedience to the law, even having added on to the law that God had given them and and upholding it uh, as best as they could. And so they were the religious elite. They were strict in their ordinances of these things. Not only that, but he's a ruler of the Jews, which means he's probably a part of the Sanhedrin, the the court, the ruling court of that day. And so Nicodemus is a part of this upper echelon of Jews. And this man, representative of the men from chapter 2, verse 25, He comes to Jesus and He comes by night. Uh, He comes by night, uh, and that will be important when we get to the end of our passage uh, later on, but 
when you read through the Gospel of John, as you are doing uh, as a church, as we've done the first week of January, maybe you noticed some of the other mentions of night in the Gospel of John. All of them are used metaphorically or symbolically uh, to refer to moral or spiritual darkness. So night in the Gospel of John is not a good thing, and this is no different. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as, at night, uh, likely the Apostle John giving us that detail of what's happening in the story to show a, a deeper reality of Nicodemus, a shame maybe, a willingness to uh, be public with his conversation with Jesus. And I wonder if that would describe some of us when we get out into the world, uh, a, a wanting to cover, a wanting to hide for fear of man, for fear of what others will think. You know, we've seen what people say about a certain kind of Christian that think these things or that things, and I don't want to be can, uh, wrapped up in that kind of a group, so we go quiet. And John mentions people like this later in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think that probably describes Nicodemus pretty well. Fearful of his own pharisaical group that would kick him out of the synagogue, him being a ruler of that. And so he came to Jesus at night fearing the authorities uh, there. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now that sounds really kind of Nicodemus to, you know, pat Jesus on the back. I, I'm assuming Nicodemus is Jesus' elder. As a ruler of the, the Jews, a rabbi himself, comes to Jesus, intern rabbi, new rabbi on the scene, and says, now rabbi, we know that you've been sent from God, for no one else can do these things of God. He has this, uh, he claims this knowledge. We know. We, this group of Jews, we Pharisees, we rulers of the Sanhedrin, we know that you're a rabbi, that you're a teacher, and you're obviously sent by God because you're able to, to do signs. We know who you are. We know the kind of person that you are. We've seen them in the past, in the Old Testament. We know that you're one like that. You're a teacher. You're a good moral teacher uh, sent by God, for else you wouldn't be able to do these, these things, for these signs bear witness uh, about you. Even Jesus acknowledged this, that the very works that He was doing bear witness about Him and that the Father had sent Him. Uh, this is clear, but, but Nicodemus has put Jesus in, uh, while it's true that he is a rabbi, while it's true he is sent from God, that he comes from God, that he's able to do signs 
uh, and wonders, that's not the whole truth about who Jesus is. And it's a a truth that's lacking. It gets at the argument that C.S. Lewis made in his uh, one of his most famous books, Mere Christianity, and it, and it's, it reads this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, just like Nicodemus said right there. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher or a great rabbi, a teacher sent from God, as Nicodemus put it. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a nor fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is what C.S. Lewis came to understand, and and, uh, I will argue that what Nicodemus would come to understand eventually, but not here. He claims this knowledge about who Jesus is, and claiming this knowledge about Jesus, Jesus uh, enters into the, the, the conversation. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus essentially is looking at him and saying, you think you know all things. You think as a good Jew, as a, as a good Pharisee, as a ruler of the Sanhedrin, that you know who I am. That you know what it takes to see the kingdom of God. That you know what it means to be Uh, uh, a part of God's people. You think you know, but let me tell you something. Truly, truly, no one will see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus is saying you must be born again to be able to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hears this, being Jesus' elder probably, being a Pharisee, being a ruler, and is just flabbergasted by this. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think Nicodemus is the old man. How can a man be born when he's old? Jesus, you expect me, an old man, 
to enter into my mother's womb a second time to be born again, this just didn't compute to him. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus repeats himself, but says it in a little bit different way. Again, second time, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now he doesn't say born again. Uh, If he didn't understand what it meant to be born again or born from above, as it could be translated, here Jesus gives a little bit more detail to something he probably should recognize. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you must be born again to not only see the kingdom of God, but to be able to enter the kingdom of God. And so here Jesus gives them a little bit more details. These words, water and spirit. Remember, Nicodemus is your Old Testament prof at uh, Bible school. He knows the Old Testament well. He ought to know it better than he led on in this moment. Uh, There are several passages in the Old Testament that describe this new and coming covenant that would be established by the Messiah. And while we may read water and the Spirit and are only helped by our cross-references or our study Bible pointing us back to the Old Testament, I think Nicodemus knew and yet did not realize uh, the connection here and was unwilling to accept it. For Jesus was alluding to a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. And there in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, Ezekiel is a prophet during the time in Israel when Judah has been taken into exile in Babylon. And he hears these words, sees these visions from God, while in Babylon, and he writes them for God's people um, to encourage them while they're in the exile. Excuse me. While they're in the exile, so that uh, they would be encouraged to hold fast, um, to persevere, for one day they would be going back to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel gives uh, a prophecy. He gives the, the words of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 36. And in verse 24, here uh, the word of the Lord that Ezekiel writes down for them promises to cleanse them. Um, Not only cleanse them, promises to uh, give them the land back and to send them back to the land. In verse 24, he says, I will take you from the nations, that would be Babylon, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That's encouraging for a people who's been taken into exile in Babylon that they would get to return and go back to their own land from all of the dispersal that they experienced. That's encouraging. And and by this time that Nicodemus is living in, they had experienced that. They had made it back to Jerusalem in 539 and had rebuilt the temple that Jesus had just cleansed there. But the prophecy goes on in verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. In verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the first part of this prophecy had come true. They were back in Jerusalem, but the second had not yet. This cleansing with water, this giving of this new spirit to enable them to obey these rules, that hadn't come yet um, to them. The Pharisees were trying to establish it on their own by making more rules that they could then obey themselves but not allowing Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, to establish this new way. So Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again. You must be born of the water and the Spirit of what was prophesied through Ezekiel many years ago. Ezekiel would go on in chapter 37 to describe a vision that he had of this valley of dry bones, a valley full of rattling dry bones. And God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones, and when he did, they, they, they grew sinews and muscles and flesh onto them, but they were still lying lifeless. Though they looked more alive, in, with flesh on their bones, they still weren't alive. And, and God told Ezekiel in this vision to prophesy to them and, and tell the breath to go into them. And he did, and they were restored to life. This valley of dry bones was now uh, walking, full of walking, breathing men in it. And, and that picture of what it means to be born again from dead bones to walking and talking and breathing human physically was what God had promised would happen spiritually when the Spirit came upon them. And so Jesus, trying to describe it a second way, repeating Himself with some different words in verse 5, He goes on and says, "...that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Essentially, like bears like. Flesh bears flesh, but the spirit bears spirit. He says in verse 7, Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. And here it's interesting that the, the word for you there is actually plural. Nicodemus said, we know who you are, Jesus. And Jesus, in fact, says, no, you all don't know who I am. Don't marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He likens the Spirit to the wind. You can't see it. You can't control it. You can hear it and you can feel its effect, but you don't know where it comes from it, because it's a work of the Spirit. It's not a work of man. It's a work from above, from the Father. 
And so this, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is highlighting uh, the fact, the, the, the necessity of new birth by the Spirit. That one, Jesus says, uh, unless one is born again, or you might say that you must be born again. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, who's obeyed all the rules, done all the right things, gone to all the right classes and all the right schools, had perfect attendance, knows his Old Testament well, knows this, that, or the other, has all of the titles of whatever group of Christian you want, except one, born again, truly saved, born of the water and the Spirit. And Jesus said, none of that matters for anything unless you're born again. Jesus is highlighting the necessity of new birth that comes from the Spirit, not by obeying the rules, not by attending church, not by dropping an offering in the offering box or clicking a Give Now button on a website to this church or to the tragedy in Turkey or to this, that, or the other. None of those things, though good as they are, will save you in the end. Please hear me. Please hear Jesus in this, trying to make this, this differentiation between religion and relationship with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is showing the necessity of new birth by the Holy Spirit. But He goes on in verse 9, and it's there that we note not only the necessity of new birth, but the simplicity of of new birth through Jesus or the Son. The simplicity of new birth through the Son. Nicodemus says in verse 9 to Jesus, how can these things be? How can these things happen? Jesus? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher in Israel? You remember what Nicodemus called Jesus? Teacher? And now... Jesus is turning that back on him and saying, Are you not a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You're an Old Testament prof. You should know Ezekiel 36 better than everyone. You, you've taught this passage to your disciples. Rabbi, do, do you not understand these things? For the third time, verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, Remember what Nicodemus said? We know that you're a teacher sent from God. Jesus says, yeah, I know what you know. And we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. Remember, he had seen the signs of Jesus. But you, or you all, you plural, you do not receive our testimony. The one condemnation that they had, the one thing that kept them from being born again was that they would not receive Jesus' testimony that He was the Son of God, the Messiah sent to be the Savior of all who would repent and believe. And Jesus rebukes him, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Or, or we might say, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, 
I told you the, the most simple things, the things that you should have known and you didn't understand. How are you going to understand the even deeper things of heaven if you don't even understand the first thing that you must understand to be able to see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God? This is first. This is uh, the number one priority, Nicodemus. And you don't even understand that. I can't go past this with you, Nicodemus, unless you get this right. You have to see who I am uh, as the Lord is revealing it to you. He goes on. He says why he should receive his testimony. In verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus uh, gives himself this title, the Son of Man, that, that has Old Testament reference as well that would have stirred up for Nicodemus that Jesus was claiming to be the, the coming Son of Man, the Messiah. And Jesus is saying that there's no one else in all of the world who has ascended into heaven and come back down to tell everyone else what he saw in heaven or the things of heaven or what it takes to see the kingdom of God or what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. No one has ever done it. Only he who descended from heaven originally is what Jesus is saying. The only person who has the right to be able to speak to these things, which is why Jesus was the one that was able to claim the necessity of new birth, because he alone knows where new birth comes from, was Jesus. For Jesus alone left his, his home in heaven, descended to this earth to take on flesh, to live a perfect and sinless life up to this point and continued to do so. And to point people to the way that he was making to be able to see the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God, uh, to be with the Father in heaven in the end. Only Jesus has the right to be able to say these things. And he goes on in verse 14, if, if Nicodemus didn't pick up on the allusion uh, in the previous paragraph to the Old Testament, he better get this one. In verse 14, where Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's a direct reference and almost citation to a story that you may be familiar with from Numbers 21. Uh, and in Numbers 21, it would probably be best for me to just simply read it quickly rather than trying to retell you the story. It's short enough to, to read just five or six verses. In Numbers 21, verse 4, uh, this is during the, the period after the Israelites had escaped from Egypt. They were wandering in the promised land and uh, uh, were, uh, were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It says in Numbers 24, verse 4, 
from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. You thought you didn't like snakes. Imagine fiery serpents among the people. And it says, they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, at the bronze serpent, and live. Nicodemus knows this story. Now we know this story. And Jesus says back in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying that that bronze serpent on a pole in the Old Testament was a type of Christ. It was a picture in a shadow pointing to Jesus who would come and, and be the better uh, one that was lifted up. And Jesus says that I too will have to be lifted up on a pole. And all who Look to me. All who believe in me and look up to me will be saved. Not just from the bite of a serpent physically, but from the sting of sin and death that we've all been bitten by. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus points out to Nicodemus that yes, it is necessary that you be born of the Spirit. But he goes on to say that there's a simplicity to this new birth. And it comes not through obeying all of your rules and even all of your extra rules that you've added, Nicodemus. Salvation, the kingdom of God, eternal life doesn't come from being a part of this group or that group. It comes from you being born again. It comes from you simply looking to Jesus, lifted up on the cross, dying, though perfect, for the sins of all who would repent and believe. And anyone, everyone in fact, who would look to Jesus in that way, like the Israelites did, repenting of their sins, that we've sinned against God and Moses, for you to be able to say, I've sinned, Lord, against you. And I'm looking to Jesus, who was sinless and yet died for my sin. I'm looking to you for salvation. Everyone who 
repents, everyone who believes in Jesus in that way will be saved. Jesus says in John 8, 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. There was a mysteriousness to what Jesus was saying. Many, Nicodemus was one, I think, who had this in the back of his mind, this experience in his history, but would not fully come to understand these things until Jesus himself was, in fact, lifted up on the cross. And then he would come to know the, the reality of this. But it's not just the necessity of the new birth that we need by the Spirit nor is it the simplicity of the new birth that comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when we look to Him by faith. I want you to note the generosity of new birth from the Father in verse 16 through 21. It's at this point that I believe that Jesus stops talking and John starts commenting and explaining on what just happened. He'll do something similar in the next section of John chapter 3. Tell a story and then John will explain and comment on it. So I think it's John's words here in verse 16 explaining uh, the necessity of new birth, the simplicity of new birth through Jesus Christ as uh, a gift from the generosity of the Father. For we see in verse 16 and verse 17, for God, for God, for God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave, He graciously, generously gave His only Son, and that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again, for God. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus didn't, God did not send Jesus. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Think about the, the illustration from the Old Testament in Numbers. God didn't tell Moses to build a serpent on a pole to condemn the people, uh, to point out their fault. See this fiery serpent? Yeah, you're, remember, it reminds you that you sinned and you got bit. Ha ha. No, it was sent to save them. They were to look to this serpent and be saved. Jesus didn't come and, and be willing to be crucified on the cross, you know, to condemn us in our sin, but that we might find salvation in him. This is why God sent him, this is why Jesus came that we might have eternal life, that we might be saved, and that whoever would believe in Him 
would not be condemned any longer, but would experience eternal life. He illustrates it in verse 19 through 21. He says, and this is the judgment. Judgment and condemnation are uh, similar sounding Greek words. And so he's playing off uh, that idea here in this verse. This is the judgment. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you remember what time of day Nicodemus came to Jesus? At night. In the darkness of night. Not in the light. Not when his works would be exposed as sin for what they were, but in the darkness. For everyone, he says in verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Why did Nicodemus come at night? Lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The generosity of God is that he sent his one and only son to die the death that we deserve so that all who repent and believe might get the righteousness of Christ so that they might be able to stand before him. And yes, you have to come to Jesus acknowledging your sin, repenting of your sin, standing in the light and allowing the light of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's shining on our sinful, dark hearts and souls to be exposed to the Lord and to all around us. But in the end, when you repent and you believe in Jesus Christ, that sin, that darkness, uh, that evil is taken away in an instant and you are then given the righteousness of Christ so that you can not only stand before one another, but you can stand before uh, the Lord in heaven and be judged by Christ's righteousness that was a gift to you, not your own lack of righteousness that you lived here on this earth. Nicodemus uh, pops up several more times in the Gospel of John. Uh, later on in John chapter 7, Nicodemus pops up with a, a comment trying to give Jesus a fair trial before the rulers of which he were, was a part of, and, and he got ridiculed at that point. But then Nicodemus pops up in John chapter 19. Now you can turn there and we can read together in closing what happened. But imagine some years of Jesus' ministry go on, this moment etched in Nicodemus' mind as he continues to question that night and what did it mean that I must be born again? What did it mean that the Son of Man had to be lifted up only when on that literally dark day that Jesus was arrested, 
and crucified and lifted up on that pole did Nicodemus finally realize what happened that day. I mean, we find out that Nicodemus was actually there on the day that Jesus was lifted up on a pole. And after he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, I have to believe that he had a new birth experience and that he realized that all of his righteous deeds were nothing when laid at the foot of the cross, that he couldn't save himself, that Jesus had to come to save him, and that everything that Jesus said had just a greater meaning to it in that moment, so much so that in the midst of the day, um, he came alongside another to help take Jesus down from the cross and bury him. Look in John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. At this point, Nicodemus doesn't care who sees him. He doesn't care which of his friends, which of the rulers of the synagogue sees him because he knows that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. He knows that he will not see or enter the kingdom of God apart from being born again. He sees the generosity of God the Father in giving his one and only son to be lifted up on a pole to save him and all who would repent and believe. And he's now not only bowed the knee to Jesus who's lifted up on the pole, he, he comes out in public, no longer in secret, no longer at night, and brings 75 pounds of ointment to honor the dead body of Jesus Christ and to give him a proper burial. And he worships Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this way. What a radical turnaround in the story of Nicodemus. One who didn't understand for a long time. One who attempted to make his own way or earn his way into the kingdom of God uh, to earn eternal life for so long, years. This elderly Pharisee and ruler uh, of, of the Sanhedrin now becomes childlike in his faith, simply looking up to Jesus and seeing the generosity of a gracious God who made a way of salvation for him. For there is no other way by way which men might be saved but through Jesus Christ. What about you? You've been trying to earn your way to heaven? Trying to earn your right standing before God? Doing this, that, or the other? Calling yourself a Christian? Doing a lot of Christian things, but... Know in the depths of your heart you have yet 
to be born again. And if you were to stand before God, you, like Nicodemus on that night, would have been rebuked and judged and judged rightly. Would you, with the perspective that Nicodemus had after the cross, bow your knee today? For it's only by looking to Jesus that we might experience new birth through the Spirit. And Christian, if you have looked to Jesus, you have experienced that new birth, not through your own works, but by repenting of your sins and trusting Christ, do not then fall back to a works-based faith that you try to earn God's love, that you try to earn a better spot in in heaven. Don't proclaim a works-based gospel as we go out into the world to be the church in the world. Rest in what Christ has done. Simply look to Him. Worship the the Father as only He deserves to be worshipped for His generous and gracious gift in His Son. And live in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, for it was the Spirit that brought you to life Why else would you live in your own strength as you leave this place? Let's live by the power of the Holy Spirit as we go away from this place. Uh, Whatever we call ourselves, Christian, Evangelical, Protestant, let's make sure we've been born again. Let's make sure we have new life in the Spirit, having looked to Jesus as God's gracious gift to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help this morning as your word has been proclaimed, as your word has been sung, as your word has been prayed. Lord, in one sense, we've done our part as pastors, as members. Lord, we pray that you would do your part For we cannot make the wind of the Spirit blow in this place. We need you to move. So Holy Spirit, I pray you would blow in this place this morning. That you would save man, woman, boy or girl as you saved Nicodemus. Jesus, I pray that if some have yet to look to you and you alone that they would look to you lifted high on the cross knowing that you died for their sins and rose from the dead to give them eternal life and lord may we stand father and worship and praise you for who you are the giver of every good and perfect gift especially christ jesus your one and only son May we worship and praise you as only you are due. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this opportunity to consider these things together this morning. Would you shine the light of Jesus Christ and the gospel on the darkness in our lives and in this world? May you reveal the truth that we need to see and hear this morning as only you can. Lord, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand, let's sing, let's worship in closing together.